If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain John Cotter. Cotter served as a combat engineer in the Australian Army in Vietnam. It was his job to crawl through enemy tunnels to map their network, seize supplies, flush out enemies, and place explosives. My name's uh, John Cotter, uh, C-O-T-T-E-R. I was a sapper in uh, Vietnam. Uh, I retired uh, 18 months ago as a captain of Royal Australian Engineers. Uh, well, at that stage, back in uh, 1963, I was working around the north, uh, big wet seasons, but tired of that, so I decided to join the Army. It was a toss-up between that or the mounted police, so the Army won. I choose engineers, yeah. They ensure that the battalion can move by providing roadworks, all that kind of stuff if necessary. They ensure that they can survive, provide water supply, uh, gas warfare, they look after the gas warfare. Um, they take care of any of the uh, mines that come up, lay mines to protect the battalion, take care of enemy mines, booby traps, that kind of stuff. So the battalion can then get on with its primary role of fighting, seizing ground and fighting, yeah. Well, with my background as a, as a farming background, that kind of work was more in line with the uh, uh, shooting big guns or running around in tanks and we're still being infantry, yeah. Uh, support uh, infantry on operations, that was our main part. We also did um, a little bit of support back in camp, building structures, buildings, uh, toilets, all that kind of stuff, providing water, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We were part of uh, one battalion, Royal Australian Regiment group, which was part of 173rd Airborne Brigade, based in Benoit. Well, 173rd also had their own American engineers. We were there specifically to uh, support the Australian battalion uh, on operations. Back in camp, we came under 173rd Airborne Brigade's engineers for tasking, road building, all that kind of stuff. Well, the first challenge we faced was uh, the rain. I mean, the it never rained, it just bucketed down. So, of course, you still had to work. If you were digging ditches, uh, doing that kind of stuff, work still had to go on. So you had that. That was a, that was a challenge. Uh, the terrain, we went from um, open wooded type terrain into uh, mountains, thick jungle, uh, primary and secondary jungle. Uh, of course, there's a difference in those. Uh, primary jungle's not too bad. That's the Tarzan type stuff. Uh, secondary jungle, of course, is where... The primary jungle has been cleared somewhat and all this rubbish and vines and that come back. It's a lot thicker, hard to work through. So we had all that as well. Not helped by our own policy and our own training of that we don't use tracks. So we let the enemy use the tracks, we work off the, off the side. 
So uh, that was that was a challenge as well. So you have the terrain, uh, the thickness of the vegetation, the weather. Uh, when you get into the monsoon season, then you've got the the closeness of it all. Yeah, and for an engineers carrying uh, ten or fifteen pound of explosives, that added up to the challenge. When we came off the boat off uh, Sydney, uh, well, that was a bit of a anticlimax, I guess. Um, we'd uh, previously we'd only come back from Borneo a few months before we left for Vietnam. They asked for volunteers to go over to some Southeast Asian country. Wouldn't tell us where it was, and of course um, we didn't know until the powers that be decided that we were to be trusted where we were going. And of course the the screaming yellow hordes was all over the place. Everyone that wore black was a baddie. And of course, when we landed there, uh, everyone, including the cleaners, wore black pajamas, and uh, obviously they weren't baddies. So coming off the boat was a big anticlimax. That uh, we landed in a friendly area. There was uh, people going about their normal business and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Benoit Airport, that's a bit different again. That was first impression was the sheer size of it. I mean, there was planes all over the place. Uh, we'd never seen so many planes in the one place at the one time, and all different types and a couple of Australian ones looked uh, kind of lost there. So, yeah, first impressions, huge place. First operation, well, the first couple of times we went out was basically a, uh, a lead-in to it. Uh, I mean, the, I think the first one was a short operation from memory, about five days, something like that. So it was very much a matter of uh, taking advice from people that had been out there from the infantry that, were, that had already been there and this doing what was required. It wasn't until later on, of course, that we found out what uh, we're all about, that we were able to make our own decisions and, and implement things ourselves. Uh, first advice yet for first uh, impressions, um, walking a long way, continually walking and watching the infantry do their things. We, we simply travelled as a small group in the middle of the infantry in their headquarters, wherever their headquarters was, and uh, we simply went and done whatever they told us. So it was a matter of uh, observing and seeing what they did, how they worked, and then doing what we were asked of. But uh, in the the last war, they had a saying that uh, the war was long moments of boredom broken by uh, short spells of sheer terror, and I guess that was the very similar to those first couple of operations of boredom of moving along and then if something happened, um, not being part of the infantry team, you were kind of a little bit out of it. So all you could do was pull your head in and wait. Well, you feel kind of helpless uh, because you're not in the picture of what's going on. Of course, the uh, platoon commander has got other things to do rather than worry about what his couple of engineers are doing. Uh, he's only interested in that you're out of the way, out of his way and not getting in his way. So until you, until we became a little bit more experienced with them and knew how they operated, yeah, it was, it was uh, quite, quite a sight um, and quite a feeling not knowing everything that was going on. They were patrols, usually uh, search and destroy patrols, uh, search for the enemy and destroy him. So, um, the uh, patrols would simply start off in the morning at first light and uh, move all day uh, to a predetermined pattern, of course, stopping for uh, for lunch, a brew now and then, yep. 
you would spend a long time moving through areas and see nothing and uh, hear absolutely nothing. So no contact, no sign of the enemy or anything like that. And then uh, once the, the brain had started to become a little numb, I guess, and then something would happen. Um, you'd have shots and all that going on. And then, yeah, that would be the, the adrenaline would start to flow and yeah, and the head would be trying to make sure the backside's not going to be in danger and, and we're in business. But that's how it went for a long time. And that's mainly the way with the infantry work, with the, uh, with the patrols. I mean, for them, the tension was there all the time because they were up the far, up the sharp end. Whereas we were in the middle of the group, pretty well protected. If the booby trap looked particularly dangerous, um, and we, we weren't particularly, uh, uh, brave that day, we would simply pull it. You would attach a, uh, a grapnel to it, get back a fair, uh, safe distance behind cover and pull it and detonate it. Uh, other times, um, we would simply deal ours it. So we'd disarm it, put the pins back in, that kind of thing, and then pull the whole thing apart and take it with us. Their usual ones were tripwire activated. So there'd be a wire stretched across a track or, uh, a vine or something like that that would be uh, stretched across the track and it would simply be a matter of then following procedures and, and uh, delousing it. Unless we were actually doing a search, we would uh, not likely to find any. The infantry would find them, usually the lead scout or something like that. The patrol would stop and then we would be called forward to deal with it. The infantry had their pioneers who could also deal with it, but they were back at the battalion headquarters, they weren't out with the with the patrols, so we'd get called forward, deal with the problem, and then patrol would carry on. Each uh, each house in the village had its own little underground bunker for protection, and they quite often had a tunnel leading off that. Sometimes just for protection, other times just to get away from that building, so they would exit, say, on the side of a creek or something like that. So those tunnels were our first introduction to it, but they were pretty benign. There was uh, really no danger in them. There's, there may have been people hiding in them or virtually taking shelter. So it was, in those cases, it was more a matter of, uh, convincing, uh, the local inhabitants to get out of the tunnel and come upstairs where we wanted to talk to them. The other type of tunnels, the, uh, the dangerous type ones, the ones that fought back a little bit, that was, uh, Operation Crimp, uh, in Hobo Woods, uh, and that was, um, a large complex of tunnels that Ultimately, we found to form part of uh, the larger network, which uh, would have formed then part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was the long resupply trail from North Vietnam down into the south. We hadn't um, seen anything like it. I mean, the tunnels in the in the villages were, that was logical. I mean, if you were going to get bombed, you needed somewhere to go to. These people had been at war for a lot of years, and of course, self-protection was there prime aim. These things were a little bit different. They were used for uh, communication purposes so they could move people and stores and equipment up and down the line, uh, used to hide their people and also used as a uh, a means of moving from one fighting point to another, which was actually how it was all initiated. So uh, by firing on the forward elements of the infantry. Uh, one of them I remember was the uh, little slit in, a, in an ant nest and that was the uh, the outward appearance of that particular machine gun post. And one of those engaged the forward enemy or the forward elements of the battalion. And, of course, um, he then disappeared. So having fired his couple of shots, disappeared. 
makes it very hard for those people trying to bring fire to bear, especially when the same gunner then appeared somewhere else and uh, did the same thing. So it was like uh, trying to pin down a little will-o'-the-wisp. So it wasn't until later on that you're actually able to sight where the thing was coming from and actually pinpoint it on the ground that you could do something with it. Then you could bring fire to bear and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, then once you opened up one of these things, well, then you had access into it. The first major tunnel was crimp. After it all finished, uh, the um, the infantry action had finished and they went into all-round all protection. So they completely surrounded this particular piece of real estate. Well, our job then was to go in and find out what it was all about. A couple of the opening slits were blown to, to make it bigger to go in. And then it was a matter of going in and then finding where they all went to. At that stage, of course, we had no idea of how what the size of this stuff was, where it was going or what it was even there for, other than the fact that we knew that a couple of enemy bunkers were obviously connected by a tunnel. Uh, that's nothing new in uh, tunnel warfare, but the newness of it was the extent of this whole thing. So uh, we're operating in teams in the various companies, so... Initially, it wasn't as if all the engineers were together. We were, we were spread out. We came together um, later on, and uh, that's when uh, Sandy McGregor was able to coordinate all that kind of stuff going on. So once we found a way in, then it was relatively simple to find a way out. Um, to locate the way out was simple. To open the way out was a different thing altogether because it was obviously... Uh, trapdoors and quite obviously booby-trapped. Now, these things were booby-trapped so that people outside initiated the booby-trap, but if you were on the inside, you didn't know whether it was booby-trapped, how it was activated, so you couldn't open it. So it was a, it, that was a bit of a problem. So you then had to come upstairs and locate it on the surface, the booby-trap, or the trapdoor rather, then uh, the allows any booby-traps were there, and then you were back in business. We travelled in uh, uh, teams of about two and came together then for to form bigger teams. So the teams were changing all the time. I, I operated with uh, up to a four-man team at times. Sometimes it was a two-man team. With Dennis, uh, he and I were actually down there on our way to help um, extricate another man that was uh, having trouble in the tunnels. He'd got into trouble because of the smoke. Um, it was thought initially that once you found these tunnels, then an easy way to find out where the exits were and all that kind of stuff was to throw some smoke grenades down there. If you thought that there was some enemy down there, well, the infantry would throw some tear gas down there, which um, didn't seem to hurt the enemy a great deal, made it a bit uncomfortable for us. So you then had a mixture of this smoke and tear gas down there. The tunnels being uh, the size they were, probably two foot by two foot on average, um, there wasn't any way for this stuff to disperse. So anyone going down there ran the risk of running into trouble, uh, especially if he didn't have a gas mask. And even if he did have a gas mask sometimes, it was still too much for it. So one of our fellows did get into trouble. Uh, we were on our way down to help others to pull him out. And uh, that's when I guess we got the first indication that there were other people down there. We did go past a... Uh, a little aperture or a hole in the in the wall, and there was a blue bag, a bit like a mailbag, I guess, or something like that. And uh, 
we didn't do anything about that at that stage. Um, we figured, well, we didn't have enough time to investigate that and then do what we were supposed to do in the first place, which our primary job was to help with his extrication. So uh, we left it and went on, came back to that point uh, later, and it was gone. So people had been there. So we weren't the only ones down there at that stage. That was a bit of a shock. Um, at that stage, we were sailing along, believing that uh, anyone that was there would would have gone further away, lower down maybe, but uh, yeah, then all of a sudden they hadn't. That uh, put the wind up you a little bit to know that there are those down there, especially people that do know what, what they're doing uh, as far as those tunnels go because they obviously had been down there for quite some time, so they knew where everything was. They were built without any shoring in the main. I mean, um, they range from uh, probably three or four feet below the ground surface down to probably oh, 20 feet in parts. Good material to dig in. It was uh, good hard clay, um, so therefore you didn't need any shoring for it. Um, in places, uh, especially where it came up underneath the trees, where the, you, you could see the roots and all that kind of stuff, and then down further where they enlarged into... Uh, Larger rooms, storerooms, wells. There was wells down there. Yeah. So quite a quite a big complex. And they didn't waste any uh, energy on doing things that weren't necessary. So it was big enough to crawl through for them. They uh, weren't very nice to us. They didn't make it big enough for us in some places. The teams I was with never ever came face to face with anyone. Uh, one of the other fellows... Uh, came face-to-face with the dog at one stage and uh, decided that discretion being the better part of valour, I think he put about nine bullets into it before he disappeared. Um, But no, we never came face-to-face with anyone. The blue bag incident indicated that there was people down there. Um, Tracks on the floor of the the, uh, tunnel indicated that, yes, people had been there. I mean, we found uh, bits of equipment, uh, meals, that kind of thing, so... People had been there, but no, we never came face to face. The first 10 minutes of the first time we went down uh, was probably, um, I guess it was, once you turn the the, the uh, torch off, it was totally devoid of light. There was no light at all. So you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Um, you couldn't see anything. So uh, a totally alien environment. And you really had to sit and think for a couple of minutes to get your wits about you and and to uh, make sure that everything was where it was supposed to be in your brain before you uh, went on. Once you'd done that, then it wasn't too bad. And, of course, once you'd been down for 40 or 50 minutes or so, came to the surface, then it was easy. It was always easy the next time. But the first time, no. That was a little bit windy. Cavings was a the biggest fear, because if anything else happened, gas, smoke or anything like that, you could be got out one way or the other. Well, you had a better chance of getting out. On crimp, it wasn't a problem, because we didn't have anyone moving up above us. But uh, we also didn't know what the condition of all the tunnels were in, especially when you came up a bit high in the tunnels where you could see the roots. And from there, they quite often drop down 15, 20 feet. So if that soil was uh, quite good as far as tunnelling goes, it wasn't compacted, then there could have been a problem. So 
if it was a cave-in and you were underneath it, then your chance was pretty slim. Uh, operations further on, um, further on in 66, uh, we actually did have cave-ins. We had uh, APCs running over the top of us while we were in the, in the tunnels. And of course, uh, those tunnels were only three or four feet from the surface and they caved them in. So especially when they, instead of going across the tunnel, they uh, inadvertently went up the tunnel and put one track on it and 12 tonne of machinery dropped it in. Were you in a cave-in? We were, we were in the tunnel when it caved, yeah. That's how we knew that the, because uh, you could hear the APCs uh, rumbling on top of you because uh, you're only three or four feet underground. Um, you can't do a lot. You can't really go backwards because they're coming at that stage. They were coming towards us from behind. Um, so we just had to sit and wait and uh, hope that we had enough time to react if we saw the, the roof coming down. And as it turned out, they uh, came onto the tunnel diagonally in front of us um, yeah, and caved it in in front of us. So we were able to get out through their caving, actually. I just dug our way out. Because it was only three or four feet from the surface when they caved the, the top in, we then uh, dug up diagonally through it and through to the surface. Uh, I think they were more shocked than we were. Um, one, that they'd run over a tunnel and caved it in, and two, that... Uh, they didn't know that anyone was down below I guess a lack of communication somewhere along the line, but uh, yeah, but it all ended pretty well. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siècle, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. When we pulled it all out and we actually saw the extent of, of all the equipment and, and the paperwork that we got out, um, that was pretty satisfying. But then knew that, well, all our efforts over those days weren't wasted. Um, at that stage, we'd, we'd lost one man underground. Um, I think the troop at, on Operation Crimp had about, uh, 40 or 30, something, 30 or 40 people on, that went out on the operation of engineers. At one stage, I think we calculated that, uh, all the people that were involved in the tunnel search, we had, uh, something like 3% fit to go underground. And 
I guess I was one of the lucky ones. I wasn't affected by the smoke or the gas. So uh, I was there from the start to start to go. Other people uh, got affected, uh, some people more so from the smoke and the, and the gas than, than others. Um, some became claustrophobic, uh, which was understandable. I mean, these things are so small that uh, two foot by two foot trapdoors even smaller than that. But, uh, yep. And, uh, yeah, so that, uh, they suffered quite a bit, claustrophobic fellas. Mm. Do you see men crack and just turn and say there's no way? Well, it wasn't so much, uh, it wasn't dramatic or anything like that. There was no, uh, you know, throw down the gas mask and settle soldier no more. It was more or less that, yeah, they went and had a quiet word with uh, the boss. And um, they were simply uh, taken off the, the searching parties and uh, put on something else. It wasn't a case of volunteering. It was, a, it was a case of that was the job. I mean, we're engineers over there to support the battalion to do a job. Tunnels came up. It was a job that had to be done. I mean, there was no, uh, there was no volunteering. Everyone understood that that was a job. You went down below um, and got on with it. The first... Uh, the first couple of times underground was a matter of uh, teaching yourself. There was no books or anything written on this, um, and it was a matter of uh, applying some common sense and sapinuity to uh, the situation in hand and then getting on with it. The first thing, of course, is to uh, is to find out what's, where it goes what it, and what it is. I mean, if it's a, uh, a small tunnel that's used for a hide or protection, well, then... Um, you may not do anything with it unless the infantry commander on the spot wants it destroyed and then we would simply blow it up with explosives. If it's a bigger one and it contains uh, stores, equipment, all that kind of stuff, well, then we would bring it out. So basically it's a matter of going down, finding what's there and bringing it up. You needed to uh, find out where the tunnels were going once it became extensive because with the infantry on top, you know, I guess in a rough all-round defence, you needed to know where you were going to be when you came to the surface. If you were inside the circle, that wasn't too bad. Um, then you would probably have someone, as the trap door opened, uh, you would probably have someone up top uh, with a rifle pointing at you. If you came up outside the circle and you started to open a trap door, well, then you wouldn't have a chance of uh, seeing anyone pointing a rifle at you because they would they would start shooting as soon as that trapdoor, or as soon as the head appeared through the trapdoor. One of the things that uh, we used to make sure of that we had the our bush hats, the green hat. Now, through the brim of the hat was a coloured piece of uh, ribbon. I think it was white for one of the battalions, yellow for another one. Uh, of course, you made sure you had that on your nut when you came up through the hole, so that then the gunner wouldn't shoot it off. Hopefully. So you needed to know where that was, and to be able to do that, we we developed a series of plotting underground based on compass bearings of each leg and whether how far that little leg went. So these legs very seldom went more than a couple of metres, six foot, so it was pretty easy to uh, estimate how far each leg was. And then, of course, with these plotted and either written down in the tunnel or sent up by a telephone, it was then easy to, on the surface to plot where the thing was. And then, of course, you had the advantage then if anyone did get stuck uh, of knowing where you could dig, the, the best place to dig, and also when it came time to blow it up, 
from the infantry's point of view, they dearly loved to know where the explosives were underground so they could be far enough back when we blew the thing. Charges that were used were all big. Military demolitions is like that. You make sure that the job's done properly the first time. So the charges were big. There was uh, CS powder involved that we put next to the charges so the, the concussion of the charge would force the powder along the tunnel and uh, deny that tunnel to the to the enemy because all this powder would be all over the, the uh, earth. And, of course, uh, we were then just initiated, blow it, and uh, go back and check the results. I mean, you could never, ever destroy the tunnel completely uh, unless you devoted a lot of time and explosives to doing it. The idea was to uh, deny the enemy the tunnel for a length of time, and the CS powder would do that. It did deny it up to a few months. Well, the first reaction was that when it went off was one that, A, that you'd done the job properly. Infantry commanders don't like engineers that set charges and then nothing happens because then you have to wait for about 30 minutes or so before you can go back in to uh, take care of it. And in that time, of course, the infantry are sitting around twiddling their thumbs and they don't like it at all. Of course, you can't leave the explosives there because then the enemy may find them, or in fact, they would find them and they would use them. So they'd take them away and use them. So, yeah, so that was the first reaction, yeah, that it had gone off and so you'd done your thing, you'd done the, that part of the job right. And then, of course, when you went back and had a look at the, at the job, uh, the next reaction was that uh, if the job was right, well, then, yeah, then you were happy because all your calculations were right because the engineers doing the job had to do their own calculations. I mean, uh, Sandy McGregor or no one else did any calculations for you. You did them yourself. So if you fouled up, well, then you wore it. And uh, if you fouled up, the first one that you wore it from was the infantry commander because uh, he wouldn't be happy. Any ones that I laid yeah, were done properly and they went off. Hard to say whether it uh, saved lives. I mean, it, it's very hard to say in warfare whether what you do saves lives unless you can see the, the end result of it and, and get a handle on what happened after that. Whether it aided the war effort, uh, no doubt, from the the, uh, the amount of documentary material, stocks and all that kind of stuff, weapons that came out of it uh, would have been a blow to the enemy at that stage. So I think... From my point of view, I think it was more that it was um, aiding the war effort or aiding our war effort uh, more than saving lives. We uh, we didn't know what the Americans were doing really, especially up further north, what their uh, engineers were doing. We had an idea that there hadn't been a lot of work done on tunnels because we hadn't had any intelligence back on it as far as, you know, what to look for and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, no, there was no, uh, there was no feeling of, uh, of uh, you know, we're the first and all that kind of stuff, no. It was, it was more a case of getting on with the job and doing what we were trained to. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sore point. Uh, the American philosophy of war is quite different to ours. Their idea is to uh, uh, create a big present, a high profile, uh, get the enemy to commit themselves to them and then reply with uh, superior manpower and firepower. Uh, our philosophy has always been that, uh, no, we don't do that. We uh, we prefer to take the enemy on at their own game. 
So we prefer to find him before he finds us and see him before he sees us. And that was the biggest difference. A lot of operating differences. Um, the Americans had a, um, a quaint little thing of clearing their f- uh, front by fire. So time come dusk and uh, they settled down for the night uh, to clear the front to make sure there were no baddies out the front. Uh, everyone simply fired their weapon in the general direction of the baddies, uh, whereas uh, the Australian forces never ever did that. You never fired until you, unless you had something to fire at. And we uh, actually cleared it by sending people out to patrol around the perimeter and uh, clear any enemy from there that way. So there were operational things like that that uh, were different. Um, the manner of the Americans walk, moving through the terrain was different. Um, we didn't like it. They, um, to our eyes, they lacked uh, self-discipline. They lacked discipline on moving, all that kind of stuff. Actually, if we were operating with the Americans, we, fa- we felt that the way that they moved through the bush, um, the way they, they conducted themselves did compromise us and we weren't happy with it at all. We preferred to be well away from them. Um, unless, of course, there was lots of baddies out there, then we preferred to be a little bit closer because they had all the big firepower and, uh, yeah, we weren't averse to that at all. But uh, moving through the scrub, no, we preferred to be on our own. Yep. The best memory? The farewell parade, when we left, um, the brigadier at that stage, I think, said something along the lines that uh, he would love to serve with us again, uh, or have us, but uh, he wouldn't have us all together in the one in the one organisation. I think um, we created a bit of a, um, a bit of history over there, or a bit of a history in uh, doing the things that we did, um, both uh, in the field and and uh, off duty. We figured that uh, we'd probably earned our trip home and we figured that uh, some people mustn't have liked us too much. Uh, our going away present from over there after the parade was we went down to uh, Vung Tau where we got rid of our weapons and handed in all our bits and pieces and all that kind of stuff and picked up new uniforms. And then uh, on Back Beach, they simply put up a couple of marquees down on, on the beach at Back Beach outside the protective wire around the, the base. Um, put a uh, 44-gallon drum at each end, half filled it with ice, and that was our home for, I think, a couple of days or two or three days uh, before we left the country. Um, we more or less floated in and out of there as uh, as required. Um, I think everyone got into a suitable amount of trouble and um, imbibed a suitable amount of alcoholic-type stuff Yeah, before we went home. Um, we weren't... I guess we weren't on the best of terms with the people down at Vung Tau at the, at the, uh, the logistics base. Uh, and I think that went back to when we first went to Vung Tau from Benoit and uh, they kind of saw us as a bit of a soft touch being a superior organisation. They uh, simply decided they'd confiscate things that, from us as they wanted it, lighting plants, showers, hot water showers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they just moved us around. Uh, the various bits of terrain as they decided they wanted that particular bit of terrain. So yeah, there, was, there wasn't any any uh, love loss between us. I mean, someone would uh, uh, fresh from Australia would see that we were on a nice little knoll where our tents were set up and decide that his organisation should be there, uh, being, being a superior 
uh, type headquarters, he would simply uh, bump us off that. So we'd pack our bongos and go somewhere else. And we had a, um, a lighting plant that we had uh, got from the Americans that um, had powered the whole camp, our whole camp. Uh, they decided they wanted that. Um, we had no use for it. Well, we didn't need it because we were going uh, up to uh, Nui Dat, where everything else would be. But, uh, yeah, they decided they needed that, so they decided they'd have it. A couple of our mechanics, I think, thought otherwise, and uh, yeah, Buddha kind of did, did its thing and disintegrated. That was a generator, yep. And, uh, yeah, with a, a little bit of tender loving care with the spanner at the last minute, uh, it uh, self-destructed. So no one got the generator. The uh, I think the showers, the hot water showers, we left a memento on that. Uh, we booby-trapped that before we left. They were all harmless, obviously. They weren't going to hurt anyone. But, uh, yeah, the message got through. I mean, these things we had we had acquired at Benoit from, uh, in some cases, our from our own money where we went out and bought uh, plumbing fixtures, that kind of stuff, other things we'd, uh, we'd traded with the Americans from their big uh, salvage dump there. Whether it was a war that we should have been in or should not have been in, um, I left that for the politicians to decide. Um, as a professional soldier, my my thought was, oh, that's where the army is going, that's where I've been sent and that's the job that I'll do. Um, I think all of the people were of the same, or all of the troop were of the same opinion. Uh, there may have been the odd one that uh, didn't want to go or reckon they shouldn't have been there, but bearing in mind this was a troop that was made up of all volunteers. Uh, it was a troop that was made up also all regular army. There was no national servicemen in it. So we wanted to be there. Uh, quite a lot of us had been uh, over in Borneo before that, New Guinea, so overseas service wasn't something new. We thought we'd done a good job. Uh, what, um, what the problem was was when we came back, the reaction of the people, that was what uh, we weren't prepared for. Um, spurred on, I guess, by the, by the actions of the politicians. Parade, the uh, one battalion's parade through uh, Sydney, that was different. I think um, the woman with the uh, the red paint, the tin of red paint, I think uh, she was lucky that she never ended up in the ranks. I, I think if she ended up in the ranks, she wouldn't have got out again. Uh, so those kind of actions didn't go down well with the soldiers, no. And later on, of course, the uh, the actions of people like uh, Bob Hawke uh, went down even less well. Uh, so we never appreciated his efforts either. The irony of that, of course, was that on the uh, Welcome Home Parade, he was uh, on the dais. And uh, I think that was also um, not well received by a lot of soldiers. Yeah, so uh, we weren't very enamoured of a lot of our leaders, our political leaders at that stage, and especially our would-be political leaders, the people in opposition. I think a lot of it has. Um, the climate, when it all uh, came back, there was even uh, dissension between uh, the RSL, the mainstream RSL, and the Vietnam vets, uh, which caused them to form their own organisations, the Vietnam Veterans Association and the Federation. That's slowly being integrated now. I mean, a lot of RSLs now have uh, uh, Vietnam veteran-type people that in their committees and running it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was one area where there was a little bit of animosity. The uh, the agile one of uh, 
the department that runs vet affairs, I guess it's the same in every country. Um, I guess we're lucky we're not like Russia where you don't get anything. Uh, so that was another one where people are, are constantly um, fighting for their what they see as their entitlement for having been uh, uh, maimed or hurt or whatever over there. Uh, that's one area. But I think for the general public, I think it's it's now coming around. I think there's still people that will um, uh, go to their grave saying that we shouldn't have been there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think the later generations are accepting of the fact that that it wasn't the uh, the service's fault that they were there. I mean, we were sent there by, by our political leaders. Uh, so the target of all the agitation was the wrong target. So they were they were trying to shoot the messenger instead of going instead of aiming at the politicians, the people that sent us there. That was Captain John Cotter. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.